Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, more on covering the COVID crisis, especially as it relates to people in jails and prisons around the country. What we've seen about this crisis already is that it preys on people with vulnerabilities, people with existing medical issues, but also people who are in institutions, in nursing homes, in jails. It preys on people who are homeless. It preys on the most vulnerable parts of our society. And we're learning more and more about that every day. The situation in the prisons is particularly dire. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by two people who are going to help us understand that and help us understand how reporters around the country should be covering this in their own communities. So let me start first with Rosa Goldenson. She's a reporter for The City, which is a fairly new online news service in New York City. Rosa, welcome. Thanks. So you've been looking especially at what's happening at Rikers Island in New York, but also at the at the prison system in general in New York State. Give us an update on the state of the crisis as it relates to coronavirus in prisons and jails in the state. Yeah, well, the the challenge uh, of doing that is the challenge that there always is uh, with reporting uh, on prisons and jails, which is, uh, you know, there's very limited information. It's very opaque. So I can tell you, you know, what we're able to glean, but there's far more that we don't know than what we know. The information that I get is coming from the department and also from calls I get from people inside. The department is, um, is the Department of Corrections. There, well, there are two departments, right? There's the City Department of Corrections and then there's the State Department okay. uh, of Corrections. And then there are the pictures inside the state at prison and the city are different. Um, the city has a pretty robust medical service. So they're doing a lot of testing. Uh, I believe yesterday it was 300 people in custody right now, a little underneath that. It's roughly 300 diagnosed positive. Two detainees have died, uh, people who were in custody who were taken to the hospital, as well as two uh, staff deaths so far, an investigator and a correction officer. And by the way, uh, just to make it clear, when we're talking about people in city jails, yeah. Uh, who are in custody. Those are people who are awaiting trial, people who have been sentenced for a short duration, yeah. people who are in the middle of being transferred, right? Right. It was 85% for a long time of, of the city jails were pre-trial detainees, people awaiting trial. That number is actually higher now. A, a number of city sentenced people, people who've been sentenced to less than a year. So they, they serve that time in the city jail. Some have been released, but the the, the vast majority of people are pre-trial. They're awaiting trial. By the way, I mean, I don't need to bring it home to you, but I mean, that's what makes this even more tragic. I mean, these are people who are who are awaiting, you know, to figure out what, what their next move is, who are now being exposed to this to this virus. It's certainly what a guy who called me yesterday was saying, you know, he was like, I should, I have my rights. I'm, I, I haven't been convicted of anything. Um, yeah. And he was very scared. Uh, he was in a dorm with you know, 50 other guys sleeping 16 inches apart, according to him. People are coughing and uh, their correction officers are getting their temperature taken when they walk into the jail. The, the people in his dorm ha- hadn't had their temperatures taken in a long time. So he felt like we don't know who's 
sick and who's not. We know we've had sick people here. We know the CEOs are coming in and out um, and just feeling very uh, trapped. How did you get in touch with him? Like, how do you how do you report something like this? How do you reach somebody like that? Well, he called me, um, mm-hmm. and I think you know when once you start reporting on this stuff, then you try to kind of shake the tree and pass your number around. And I, I always give my number to anyone who calls me there and says and say, please, you know, give this to anyone who might want to speak with me. And oftentimes family members will reach out to me and then, and then give my number to someone, their loved one inside. So that was the city picture. What's, what about what's going on at the state level? The state picture is kind of even more um, opaque because the state has test has 43,000 prisoners in its custody and it's tested uh, fewer than 200 as of yesterday. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and in recent days, I've been asking for the numbers every single day. And in recent days, um, almost every test that is coming back with a result uh, is coming back positive mm-hmm. uh, when it's positive versus negative. So, but I mean, what that makes me wonder as a reporter is like, are the numbers that they're giving us really, which is about 60 people are positive out of 43,000, are those really good numbers or are they just not testing nearly enough people for us to really know the scale of things? That's my suspicion. Yeah. Let me turn to Stefan Short. Stefan is a staff attorney for the Prisoners' Rights Project at the Legal Aid Society. First on this testing question, do you agree with Rosa that that this seems to be woefully small in terms of the size of the population? I do. Yeah. And as Rosa referenced, you have over uh, 43,000 people incarcerated in the New York State prisons and a very, very small group of folks who are being tested. And certainly uh, my clients report to me that it's difficult to get a test. My clients report to me that there are folks in their housing units, whether it's cell blocks or dormitories, um, with symptoms of the virus who are not being tested. And obviously in such close quarters, that is that is very concerning to us at the Prisoner's Rights Project. So what are you doing to try to sort of prod the state into taking more action? Um, well, we've we've sent four letters to the State Department of Corrections um, since this, this COVID situation started in early March. Uh, the first letter that we sent to the department just requested information about the department's plan to deal with, with these issues. Um, we specifically requested information about what the department planned to do to test people, what the department planned to do to institute social distancing measures and provide hygiene and cleaning supplies to incarcerated people. The department did communicate with us that it had a high-level plan, um, as it said, at the 5,000-foot level um, to provide soap, to provide cleaning supplies to people who are incarcerated, um, to restrict visits, as it has done since we communicated with them. Um, you know, and, and so uh, at least the department shared some information with us early on in the month. Um, we've since written three additional times, not only to ask for more information from the department and more detailed, more concrete plans, um, but to demand the release of people who are medically vulnerable and of advanced age and particularly susceptible to serious complications or death from COVID-19. And the department has not responded to those letters. Um, so, you know, we're, we're continuing to prod them. We're not getting a whole lot in response. We're doing individual advocacy for some clients who report symptoms to us. The department has been resistant or has been non-responsive to a lot of what we've communicated, unfortunately. You highlighted specifically for incarcerated people who are uniquely vulnerable uh, because of health issues having to do with either 
heart issues or one person had skin cancer. Is it just the four that you've focused on now, or is it a much bigger population of people that you're trying to get released because of their vulnerabilities? Right. right. So we followed up with an additional list of 105 people okay. um, earlier in the week. Okay. Um, and we've indicated in both of our communications to the department in which we identify specific people that these people are just indicative of the broader problem. They have the, the diagnoses or they're of advanced age, and there are far more people who are incarcerated in New York State prisons than just this group um, that, are, that are susceptible to serious complications from COVID-19. And, and we've tried to emphasize that obviously over the past several decades, the population in New York State prisons um, has grown older, has grown more medically vulnerable, um, that's obviously indicative of a larger nationwide trend of an aging prison population, sort of a vestige of the law and order ethos of the 1970s, 1980s, um, you know, regressive drug policies, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we, we're calling on the department to do a broader review of people who meet these criteria. And we think that it would turn up a large list of people who are very, very vulnerable and need to be released and need to be provided with social distancing or hygiene and cleaning supplies immediately. You know, um, Rosa mentioned this opacity in terms of dealing with the state, in terms of getting information and data. And you, I mean, you just said that you've sent these communications to them and you just haven't heard back. What do you think is at the root of that? Is, is that just bureaucratic, them being overwhelmed in this moment? Or is there just a kind of resistance to sort of address this issue? Or are they worried about, you know, whatever, uh, legal exposure or how do you how do you characterize it uh, i think it's multiple things you know i think as so many scholars say um prisons are where we disappear social problems right and um prisons are black holes and information doesn't escape prisons i think um the department and i think correctional departments across the country benefit from sort of not sharing information with the public uh the public doesn't know just how serious and how dire the situations are in prisons and and you know, it sort of depresses public pressure. Um, so there's a vested interest on the part of these agencies um, to, to continue that dynamic, unfortunately. Um, I also think it does have something to do with um, liability. I don't think the department wants to expose itself to liability for not providing the type of medical treatment it needs to provide for people who are most vulnerable. Um, obviously, from where I sit, if the department would communicate with us more and if the department would take our request more seriously, and we would hope to be able to cooperate with the department on providing people what they need and getting people out um, who, who really cannot be cared for in the environment. So, you know, we do our best to communicate with the department. I think we are at loggerheads with them to a certain extent because they have that vested interest in not sharing information. Um, Eventually, as we've as we've said to many people, you know, we're going to stop writing letters. The letters are going to turn into writs. They're going to turn into lawsuits. So, um, I would think it would benefit the department to get out ahead of that and communicate with us more. Have there been estimates from epidemiologists on what the potential number could end up being, given the size of the population in New York State? Um, I have not seen specific numbers. Um, I haven't seen them. I mean, I've seen, obviously, estimates that this thing is going to run much more quickly through through prisons and jails because of the closed environment right. there and right. because of the petri dish nature of those institutions. But I haven't seen specific numbers. Yeah. So, Seth, what have you made of the coverage of this problem? How do you assess how journalists are doing, focusing in on the uh, vulnerabilities that these people who are incarcerated face. I mean, the challenge I would assume is that there is so much to write about this health pandemic 
And there are so many stories. I don't want to frame it for you. How do you assess how much the coverage has been and whether it's been enough, but also the quality of the reporting that you're seeing in general? Yeah, I'll say that I've appreciated the stories that have um, amplified the voices of folks who are inside these institutions. So I've appreciated the sort of perspective of the individual who's on the housing unit who can't get personal protective equipment or who is forced to congregate in a recreation yard. I think a lot of the stories I've seen really, really amplify those stories and come at it from the perspective of an incarcerated person um, who's terrified of this virus. And I've appreciated that. I don't think that's always the case with, with prison and jail reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been dismayed by certain reporting that seems to have been distracted by sort of Governor Cuomo's burnishing of his reputation, mm-hmm. right? Certain, mm-hmm. certain reporting that emphasizes what Governor Cuomo says during his, his daily press briefings doesn't dig beneath that. Um, I, I, I would like to see folks asking Governor Cuomo the tough questions about commutations and clemencies and why he's not responding to letters from advocates and sort of why he's maintaining that he has no constitutional or statutory authority to fix some of these issues when we all know that he does. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think in, in, in some respects, that's very similar to sort of the, the coverage of prisons and jails um, generally. I, I appreciate the perspective of the incarcerated person. I would like to see folks digging deeper and not taking sort of um, at face value the governor and the Department of Corrections representations about what it can and cannot do, because certainly they can do more. Rosa, do you know how many reporters in the city or state are focused on just on this story? Yeah, I, I mean, the, there's a big difference between the city and the state because of the media environment in the city and also politically. There's a stronger pressure on de Blasio, I think, in relation to Rikers Island. Mm. Like, reporters are focused on Rikers Island. It's right here. Um, the numbers are coming out. There's a there's a, a an oversight board that's pretty um, active that makes sure that the numbers come out on their end. Um, and so that reporting is just in general. There's just a lot more reporting on things that happen at Rikers Island in general, as opposed to the state prisons. Is part of that because the prison, the state prisons, are distributed in you know many locations all around the state, and it's hard it's hard to sort of focus the narrative. I think it's definitely part of it. I think they're bigger. I think people, it's just not anyone's beat in the city, particularly, you know, mm-hmm. at this sort of city publications. It's it's not a focus and it's, it's quite diffuse. And I think that that when it comes to coronavirus, you know, is very worrisome. It's certainly something I've been talking about and worrying about is like, is the kind of lower hanging fruit in a way of covering Rikers. You know, you've seen, I don't know, the the doctors from Rikers speaking Mm -hmm. out in the press, Mm -hmm. um, kind of distracting from potentially um, much larger scale issues at the state level, which as Stefan was just saying, um, in general, you know, the prisons are are a lot lower on the list of of things that people ask the governor about uh, than Rikers is to de Blasio. It's just something that he's able to um, kind of evade a lot of criticism on and and pressure about. I mean, there's there's the issue of the sort of Cuomo honeymoon that we're in now, which we actually wrote a story about, about how weird it was because, you know, three months ago, most of the state press corps couldn't stand him. Um, And now, you know, we're in this different 
vein. But was he was it the same before this crisis in terms of you know him just not being pressed by the Albany press corps about prison issues? And I don't want to I actually I don't want to make it about the press corps. I don't follow the Albany press corps very closely. No, I don't really no. know what they press him on or not. Yeah. But in general, I think that he has made a political calculation. And I say this based just on what reflected in the choices that are made, that he can not really do a lot of prison reform or or deal with it and that there aren't going to be political implications for him. So like last um, in the like last session, there were a bunch of things on the table. There was something to halt solitary confinement or reduce limit the amount of solitary confinement in the state. There was uh, the elder parole uh, stuff. There's other kind of parole reform called less is more. And it all just kind of got tabled after this bail reform stuff, which the legislators said they had um, criminal justice fatigue was the word kind of floating around. Now they've ended up rolling back uh, those measures in in some part. And so, you know, I think that there's a there isn't a sense that there's going to be a big cost for him to, you know, not address that stuff as at prime, you know, as at the top of his list. Yeah. So finally, let me ask both of you. So, so this story that we're talking about is going to be replicated in states and cities around the country. It, it is now being, now we're going to see these, the issues about incarcerated people facing serious infection spread in these institutions. Rosa, what, do you, what advice do you have to reporters around the country who are trying to sort of report on what's going on in their jails and in their prisons about how to approach these stories, how to sort of navigate around, um, you know, what the department may or may not be telling them? Do you have any sort of, I know it's, it's, a, it's a case by case thing, but do you have any sort of big picture advice that would be helpful? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would do straight straight away is every single morning be requesting those numbers because I don't think you're going to be able to backtrack and reconstruct the growth. Um, so make sure that you are you may be the only person kind of uh, outside of the inside um, tracking the growth. So I would I think the responsibility is on us to do that, um, and you know, trying to. Uh, just spend that time on the phone with people who are inside and programming the automatic numbers into your phone so you don't miss those jail calls <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so that you can get some picture of what people are hearing and seeing, connecting to the union folks and other kind of stakeholders there because correction officers are at great risk right now. Stefan, what about you? What do you want to tell state and local reporters around the country about how to tackle the story? Yeah, I think, um, you know, echoing a lot of what Rosa said, uh, leveraging those contacts on the inside and amplifying the voices of people who are inside is so important. The stories about what people on the inside are experiencing are the most powerful stories. And those are the stories that allow us to sort of get beyond the the half measures that governors are taking, get beyond the half measures that departments of correction are taking and really talk about why those half measures are inadequate from the perspective of somebody who's experiencing what those half measures actually mean. You know, when the Department of Correction talks about putting hand sanitizer at officer stations, and I talk to my clients who tell me, yes, it's been installed at at officer stations, but officers don't allow us to use it. 
Mm-hmm. Or when the Department of Correction talks about providing an additional bar of state soap every week, but my clients tell me they haven't received it. I mean, it's those stories and those direct experiences that allow us to check the accuracy of some of what the department and what governors are, are sort of um, reporting to us. Well, thank you both for coming on. Um, this has been terrific and I hope helpful for reporters around the country. It's such an important story and I appreciate your work. You can read all of our other coverage of journalism and the coronavirus on cgr.org, as well as our daily email, The Media Today. Thanks for listening. See you next week. 